Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a lot happening in Ontario and Canadian politics. In fact, our most recent election just came to a close and lots of talk about gun control in Ottawa. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University will join us to talk about all of that. U.S. is facing numerous issues right now as well, with mass shootings making headlines and gun control being a big issue down there as well. We'll speak with Reggie Cicchini, Global News Correspondent in Washington. And on the heels of the provincial election, an ardent liberal has some rather harsh words for his party after a very poor showing. Vito Scro, the author of the piece, will join us. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We want to begin, as we usually do on Monday, uh, with a look at what's happening on the Canadian political scene. A lot of ground to cover here, too, with uh, the Prime Minister in London, Ontario, yesterday, uh, and a number of calls about uh, what's going on in the States and people simply saying, well, what's the Canadian government going to do? And uh, part of the reaction to that, of course, was a a piece of legislation uh, that they introduced uh, just the other day that uh, talked about banning of handguns, and that has received as you might expect, an awful lot of pushback. Joining us to talk about all of this is Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Hey, Bill. Thanks so much for having me. Let's let's begin with the gun violence aspect. And and I, I know some of the critics, and I've read some of the op-ed pieces, as I know you have, and some of the uh, conservative pundits simply saying, look at this is just a reaction to what's going on in, in the States. Uh, this is an apples and oranges comparison. Uh, there's no need for the, the government to introduce this legislation. Uh, it would be redundant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What's your, what's your read on what you're seeing and what you're hearing here? Yeah, I mean, I think as, as we talked about last week, like there's there's a lot of pressure on the government to respond and to be able to say where Canada is in terms of our own gun safety, particularly in light of what's going on in the U.S., and I think like some of the issues that are coming up now are around the handgun issue is, are you going after people who legally own handguns? And are you doing this because it's politically smart for you to do it? Because you want to look like you're on the right side of something. But in so doing, you're actually you know trying to bring in legislation that's not going to fix the problem, is not going to deal with the smuggling issue, is actually not going to make anything better. It's going to target people who are who are lawfully gun owners and who aren't doing anything wrong. And so there's an obvious, you know, this is going to fall along those political lines. And so, you know, partisans are obviously going to take up their side of it. The conservatives are going to come in on, on you know, that argument and say, what are you, what are you guys doing? And then the liberals and I guess with the support of the NDP are going to try to say, no, you know, we're on the right side of this and we have, we have empirical evidence to show that this is going to work. So this is, this is just, I think, getting started. This will dominate in June and over the summer into the fall as well. And there's so many layers to this, and I, you know, I could spend a couple hours, I guess, talking about the ins and outs and the good and the bad and the ugly about this. Uh, but as I was reading through the legislation over the weekend, it, I had a sense of deja vu. This is almost the same uh, debate that went on in the 2005-2006 federal election uh, when Paul Martin decided uh, just before the House dissolved uh, that they were going to ban handguns. That was part of their platform. Uh, and uh, there was so much pushback on that, and, and we're seeing this uh, again I guess, you know, with, well, you know, you're going after legal gun owners. You know, I'm, I'm just a, a target shooter. Or I need this for that, et cetera. And uh, I, there's a lot of rhetoric that goes on. And we've seen this happen in the States, of course, with the National Rifle Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where does the government fall on this? I mean, you know, they want to be seen to be doing something, but are they doing the right thing? And is it actually going to be effective? I don't know that even they have answers for that. 
I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, I heard Marco Mendicino over the weekend, and he's trying to make the point that listen, like what we're doing is is steeped in evidence. We've done the research. We're not. This is not just a a kind of political play for us. It's not just about the rhetoric. It's we are trying to come along. You know, do what the federal government can do, which also means obviously working with municipalities. The federal government has indicated some discomfort with there being a totally patchwork approach, and that depending on where you live, you know, the approach is different. And then it's hard for them to justify that. But at the same time, like that's another. As you say, there are many layers to it. Another complicating factor is the multi-jurisdictional level. And the fact that, you know, the, obviously the federal government has jurisdiction over crime, but the municipalities are dealing with this sort of thing on the ground. And the, the capacity that police forces have to be able to respond to these sorts of threats, um, what border officials are doing to be able to crack down on smuggling, like there's a number, this is one of those like wicked policy problems. There are so many aspects to it. And so it's, it's I think, a tricky issue for the government because it's something that's going to be very difficult for them to, to show, you know, this is the right thing, this will produce results. And it, it's really difficult to divorce all of this from the rhetoric, from the value-based arguments, the rights-based arguments around gun ownership and gun control. It's, I mean, I don't know that we have that same, I don't think we have that kind of same cultural touchstone around gun ownership than the Americans do, but we still, you know, there's there's still a very serious divide over it in Canada. A lot of that is urban and, and rural too, as yes. a matter of fact, people yeah. feel as if, you know, they, they need firearms if they're living in a rural environment near, uh, well, predatory animals and things of this nature. So there's an argument to be made there. But are they are they trying to take too big a bite out of this, though, Laurie? I mean, the overwhelming majority of stats that I've seen indicate that most Canadians are, are for things like, you know, intensive background checks. Uh, they're for the, having uh, the courts the, the right to take away f- weapons from people that are deemed to be uh, violent offenders, you know, uh, sexual assaults and things of this nature. That, that makes a lot of sense to an awful lot of people. But if they're going beyond that now to talk about ownership and, and import of guns, et cetera, et cetera. Is, is, is that one step too far to, to try to gain consensus here? Well, it's, it's interesting. And, I, and at this point, I think it's, it's probably like we are really still, even though this is a conversation, as you say, we've had you know, many times in the country. And I think we're sort of at the beginning stages of another round of these conversations. And yes, I, to take your point and to emphasize it, this definitely does break down in some cases on rural and urban lines. But I mean, the question of whether they're going too far, I think Justin Trudeau and the Liberals will be accused of, you know, over-politicizing the issue, where they are taking an approach that will exacerbate political rhetoric and will try to create lines and try to put people on sides. And that whether that's really true or not is, I think in some cases, it's too early to tell and it's up to your judgment, but he'll be accused, they will be accused of creating a real political divisive issue over this to try to get people on side. And you could make the same argument that that the politics of vaccines and vaccine mandates have taken a similar form where it's all, you know, very, very high rhetoric. You're either on the side of right or you're on the side of wrong kind of thing. And so whether or not what they're doing is going to be helpful and productive on, you know, anything with related to gun safety, I think it, you know, still remains to be seen. And this will also spend a lot of time, you know, through the political channels, including committees, including hearing from stakeholders, where the conversation will go in all sorts of directions, and they'll have to continue to respond. 
Uh, you mentioned uh, the vaccines. Let's uh, slide into that if we could. We got, that's another hot-button issue for the federal government right now. Uh, they did have a, a vaccine mandate, of course, for federal employees, uh, and they threatened that as, after a certain date, if you had not been vaccinated, you lost your job. That's the way it was going to be. Uh, there's a great deal of pressure right now, as you know, to simply say, look, it, drop this whole thing, would you? Uh, the pandemic may not be over, uh, but the chances of, uh, of serious ramifications from being testing positive are significantly less. Drop the mandate. All is forgiven. And, and just let's just get back to work. Uh, would they? And, and by the way, this is an argument that many communities, including Hamilton and other cities, are facing with their employees who installed these mandates uh, at, at that time too. Uh, how much pressure is there going to be for governments to simply say, "Okay, uh, forget about it then"? And and how much pushback is that going to be from people who got vaccinated because they were concerned about that? Now saying, "Well, in other words, you you, you were just you were just blowing smoke here. They, they, you weren't sincere about this at all." That's it. And again, like it, some of this is again is attached to that political rhetoric that has become so polarizing and so deep, you know, on this issue of, of vaccine mandates. Now, I think, you know, it's it's still fair to say that for, by and large, the majority of Canadians have been in favor of vaccines and vaccine mandates. Now, we have obviously seen it has become a divisive issue. It's become a rallying cry for people like Pierre Polyev you know, who say we want to make Canada the freest country in the world. And that's very much a reference to how government has been controlling your life over the past number of years and using COVID-19 as a reason to do it. I mean, now, even this, like, I, I, try, I try to listen as closely as I can to the doctors who know about these sorts of things. And even the doctors are saying, you know, the, the, the effectiveness, the purpose of these mandates is decreasing. And so if the liberals are trying to say, again, you know, these what we're doing is, is based in science, it might become a little harder for them to say that. On the other hand, they have been so dug in on the vaccine mandate issue that, as you say, you know, the people who supported them over that want to keep, you know, possibly hearing that messaging. But at a certain point, there's going to they're going to have to answer more questions over. Are you are you keeping these mandates in place and you don't really have enough reason to do that, right? Like if you, it's, it's that trade-off. Like if you're going to lean on people's freedoms, it has to be for the greater good. There has to be the right public justification to do it. And if you're, if it's harder and harder to make that justification, it's going to be politically problematic for them as opposed to, um, you know, politically positive for them to do it. It's, it's an interesting situation that they're in right now because there are those who are going to say, well, it was the right thing to do at that time uh, because the numbers were escalating and there was a real concern about the impact it was going to have. Those numbers, are, they're not there anymore. Uh, and so it's going to be more and more difficult for them to actually justify that. And some of the people, as you mentioned, like Pierre Polyev, who were opposed to this right from the outset, are going to say, see, it was it was just a false alarm. You know, the, the government overreacted like they always do with so many other things. Uh, I, I don't know which way they're going to go on this one, but uh, there are going to be ramifications, and it's an issue that's not going to go away. I can see uh, whoever wins this conservative leadership race is going to make this a wedge issue. Oh, yeah, and it is a wedge issue now. But I think it's you're right. Like, I mean, there has to be, I think, a certain point where the government can say, okay, we can, we can use science to justify a change in strategy without looking like this was always a, a power grab for us, right? Like, people are experts in political communication, I'm sure they can find a way to do that. But of course, they don't want to look like they're giving in to the demands of the conservatives. They don't want to admit that, you know, look like they're admitting that they've, you know, taken these measures and they didn't really have to, and this was all unnecessary. 
And I think, you know, for them, it's going to be, it's going to play out differently in different constituencies as well. Not everybody's going to respond the same way, right? Some people, if they hear a a relaxing of restrictions and vaccine mandates, that's going to mean they don't want to fly. It's going to mean they don't want to go somewhere. Whereas for other people, they're going to say, thank goodness this should have happened long ago. And so it's about playing that too, like kind of managing the message as it, as it percolates differently in different crowds. I want to ask you, this is a hypothetical, I just want to toss it in here based on what happened in the provincial election here in Ontario uh, last Thursday, uh, where Ford was re-elected with a much bigger majority than I think anybody had anticipated. Uh, and, and the rationalization that a lot of the uh, the experts are saying here is, well, because the Liberals moved too far to the left and, and the Conservatives inched ever so slightly toward the middle, not in the middle, but that mm-hmm. way, and Rob Ford appeared a lot more conciliatory. And I think a lot of disenchanted voters, Liberal and NDP, said, you know what, I can trust this guy now. Didn't trust him four years ago, but I can. Is there a lesson here for the federal conservatives that that, that, that maybe they're being too strident, maybe they're being uh, too polarizing here, and which is maybe why they, you know, when they thought they were going to win the last couple of elections and didn't? I love this question. And this is one of those times, Bill, that I wish we had like two hours to just sit here and talk us all through. We're going we're to make that happen one of these days. Don't we got to do it. We got to do it. Um, I think that a number of things happened. I think Ford definitely was was uh, a different guy four years ago than he is now, at least politically and at least in terms of his strategy. I think he has been able he had a brand already, obviously, but he was really able to build a brand around a very pragmatic, um, you know, I'm here to help you solve your problems and I'm a regular person like you kind of he's that kind of politician and so by nature i think he's not ideological he's someone who's who just kind of wants to take every situation the way it is and uh, like also when provincial when you're running a province no matter what your beliefs are it's a completely different thing than running for federal office and talking about how you want to make canada free again he's a premier <laughs> like he, he can't afford to just go out and say things like that like he's got to figure out like if i don't get everybody to get their vaccine that means i can't open the economy again and that means my caucus has to follow suit and so i'm going to kick you out if you don't get your vaccine like he he's had to be kind of solutions oriented like that and that's given him a really interesting um, you know, kind of political transformation over the past few years. On the federal side, I mean, I, I don't know what can be taken from this. There's so many different factors. I think the fact that there's so much diversity in the conservative coalition across the country, not that there isn't in Ontario, but trying to bring the conservatives together across the country is a very different exercise than trying to do it in one province. And so what plays really well in Nova Scotia is going to go over like a lead balloon in Alberta and vice versa. And so I, I don't know. Like, I mean, I think there's something to be said for you know, not getting too lost in rhetoric and looking to try to find solutions that work for a broad coalition of people. That's always a good idea in politics and people in the federal leadership race should take some lesson from that. But there is no Doug Doug Ford in this race federally. There's nobody like him that has this brand and that, you know, is just personally so charismatic that he can, you know, over time, build on that brand to win people over there's also the low voter turnout issue so it's not like everybody yeah. in ontario said yay like doug ford is the guy <laughs> but you know I, I still take the question for for what it is and i think it's important to i'm i'm prepared to say i really don't see a doug ford among the six people who are running 
Uh, and by the way, I know we we have just scratched the surface here, Laurie. You're absolutely right. Uh, but it's worth noting that uh, that Corey Tanek, who did the Stephen Harper campaigns, of course, was running the, the Ford campaign here. Uh, and and one of the stated messages there was, that I want to make sure that people understand my guy is not evil incarnate like the other guys are painting him out to be. And maybe that message finally started to resonate. Uh, we got to do that one hour thing, and we're going to do that soon. <laughs> Always a pleasure uh, getting your opinion and uh, and your perspective on some of these uh, very very important issues, Laurie. Have a great week, and we'll talk again soon. Perfect. Take care, Bill. You betcha. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to focus on what's happening uh, south of the border. We spent some time earlier in the program here uh, talking about uh, gun violence and gun control and some of the legislation that the federal government here uh, is trying to introduce. Well, down in the States, uh, it's it's a much more dire circumstance, of course. We all know the stories about uh, Uvalde, Texas and Buffalo and others and and uh, even this past weekend, there were a number of mass shootings in a number of American cities. And under that backdrop, uh, relatives of some of the victims uh, killed in these shootings are going to make their way to Washington and uh, appear before a congressional committee. I want to bring Reggie Cicchini in the conversation. Reggie, of course, is the Washington correspondent for Global News in the American capital. Reggie, great to have you back with us on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. The numbers uh, of deaths, the number of people that are attacked and, and, and random shootings like this is is continuing to rise. Uh, you've been reporting on this for a number of weeks right now. These hearings are starting uh, in Washington today. Uh, is is, it, is there going to be any differences? Is, is what's happened in the last couple of weeks swayed any of the people that are just so strident in their opinions that uh, gun control is not necessary here? I mean, look, I think that it is making some uh, inroads. I don't know if the U.S. is going to be at a kind of turning point in how it looks at the battle between gun rights and gun control. But uh, given the fact that there were a number of mass shooting events uh, from Buffalo to Uvalde to Tulsa and then the three or four shooting incidents over the weekend uh, through Chattanooga, Tennessee and through Philadelphia uh, that left a number of people dead, this is starting to resonate with the American public and it is starting to resonate with lawmakers, so much so that over the weekend on some of the Sunday shows, you heard kind of similar tones coming from both Democrats and Republicans to say that there could be some kind of framework, there could be some kind of foundation for uh, for legislation to be able to move forward. Is it going to be something that is going to satisfy the gun control advocacy groups? Probably not. Is it going to be something that ticks off gun rights groups? Probably. But the fact that there is some kind of bipartisan compromise here is a big deal in a, you know, in an incredibly, you know, politically charged and divided environment. It's going to be a very emotional day with these hearings, isn't it? Uh, I know that one of the people that's scheduled to speak is uh, actually a fourth grader who uh, survived the attack uh, down in Texas. And, and of course, the relatives of some of the victims from the uh, horrendous uh, massacre that occurred at the Tops Market in, in Buffalo a few weeks before. Uh, and on and on it goes. I, I just, I, I, I'm befuddled sometimes, Reggie, when we watch uh, your coverage on this or even if we get a chance to watch the, the hearings. Uh, you can't help but be moved by this, but uh, it hasn't moved the needle too much here, especially uh, with some of the senators, uh, Mitch McConnell and others, that don't seem to, to understand the gravity of the situation, I, which I guess begs the question, when are the American people, Republican, Democrat, whatever, going to say enough is enough? 
Well, I think that Democrats are going to use this now as as an opportunity to kind of lay it out onto the election card platform and to say, look, now is the time. Enough is enough. We've heard the president say enough is enough. And the only way that meaningful change is going to take place in this country is in the eyes of a Democrat if you elect more Democrats into Congress. And this, you know, gun violence and gun control is a kind of, you know, if it's not a front burner topic, it is a kind of central topic uh, to any uh, uh, Democrats campaign platform, no matter what what the year is, no matter whether it's a general election or a midterm uh, election. Uh, and you're going to hear more Democrats saying, listen to the voices of the people at these mass shootings uh, uh, when, when, when reporters are there. Listen to the voices of victims uh, and family members who testify on, on Capitol Hill about gun violence and how it has impacted them. Take a look through the history books and look at how America has been changed. Democrats will use this and are using this and will likely continue to use this through towards the November midterms to say, here is your opportunity to change things. If you think enough is enough, get out and vote. Republicans will push back on that, even though you have some saying, maybe we do need to do something, because Republicans understand politics is a big deal around guns. And that's, I want to talk about the election in a second and the impact this may have on this. Is there any middle ground, though, uh, as, as you've talked to some of your sources in Washington, Reggie, that, that Republicans and Democrats could agree on? I mean, I, there seemed to be at least a, the, the building of some consensus about things like background checks, and et cetera, uh, and criminal records, of course, which would you know, be shown in, in situations like that. Nobody's ever going to get them to, to ban guns like they're talking about here in Canada right now, banned handguns or whatever. Uh, but but I, I guess you have to start with small steps and maybe work your way up. Yeah, and those small steps are, are going to revolve around conversations linked to, you know, quote-unquote, common-sense gun law measures linked to background checks and red flag laws. And you will hear kind of prominent and, and staunch-leaning right Republicans say, look, this has nothing to do uh, with background checks because that penalizes, uh, you know, responsible gun owners around the United States. But there are some Republicans even including Mitch McConnell, who has made comments over the last couple of days uh, to say, look, maybe there is something that we can do. Does this include maybe like a watered-down version of a background check? It's possible. Does it include a potential increase uh, and better use of red flag laws? That is possible. But is this going to be some kind of big um, you know, adjustment on gun, uh, gun ownership in the United States Probably not. When when President Biden was saying things like, you know, uh, uh, magazine purchases of, 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 of incredible numbers shouldn't be allowed or AR-15 purchases shouldn't be allowed, that's something Republicans are not going to go for. Even when you have states like New York and a couple of red states like Florida p- trying to put age limits on the purchase uh, of AR-15s, raising it from 18 to 21, Republicans are fighting back against that, and it's going to face a legal challenge. So whatever we come to in this country when it comes to whatever you know, framework is being worked out, nobody is going to you know, say that they came out the winner, but you will also find some groups saying, look, we didn't come out the loser because we got something. Are the Democrats going to look at this, and I, I don't mean to get too political about this, as the wedge issue that they may need? I mean, they're, they're still looking very, very nervously at what's going to happen with the midterms in in November of this year. Uh, Biden's approval ratings are still, you know, way below where he wants them to be, and they're certainly where the Democrats want them to be. Uh, can they make up some ground by using this issue? 
It's possible. I mean, look, uh, you know, Democrats thought that um, that abortion was going to be their wedge issue to be able to run on over the course of the year to say that not only are Republicans starting to take back the rights of people, but so, too, is the Supreme Court. This is now going to be a secondary topic for Democrats to say, look, this is a party that's not only um, taking away your rights, they're also making it easier for somebody to take away your life by expanding or not uh, kind of diminishing the gun control and gun rights and gun legislation that exists in this country. Uh, the problem is going to be for Democrats is to how to keep these messages front and center uh, when you, there are still so many more months to go in this campaign and you have a president who is growing wildly unpopular, not only amongst Republican ranks, but also within his own party. Uh, as important as this is, not the only uh, committee hearing that's going to be happening in the Capitol uh, this week. Of course, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. Uh, they start on Thursday. Uh, the expectation, and I, I guess they kind of let some of this stuff out as, as a leak, uh, is that they've got some blockbuster information here. And they're th suggesting, at least in some circles, that this actually may lead uh, to charges being laid against Donald Trump. It's a pretty high bar that they seem to have set here. Uh, what do you, what's the expectation in Washington about what we're going to hear and, and, and how this committee is going to react to it. Well, I mean, look, this is a big deal that this is finally coming to light, A, because this is going to be another moment for Democrats to throw something into the election pit to say, here is something else that you need to focus on when you're heading out to vote later on this year. Uh, you know, we're 18 months. We're more than 500 days from uh, the attack on the U.S. Capitol. And according to the committee, they say that they're going to put new information out. They're going to shine a light on information that has been kept secret uh, from, from conversations and depositions uh, and, and document obtaining over the last uh, X number of months, and they're going to spill this out. And when they spill it out, this is also important, Bill, because they're doing it on Thursday. Thursday's not a big deal, but they're doing it at Thursday at 8 o'clock at night, and all networks have bought up time in order to play um, this this to a, a national audience this this kind of shows how democrats see the information they see it as damning they see it as damaging to uh president former president trump and to the republican party and they think that by doing this at nighttime they are going to make uh, an impact uh, on the broader public to say look you have been fed lies from the former president and from members of the republican party here's the information that they haven't told you uh, it, it's it's going to be fascinating to see how this plays out, though, because uh, I mean, you know, the, we we heard stories anecdotally that Trump was actually cheering him, and they were saying, "Hey, Mike Pence," uh, suggesting that he actually even initiated that sort of stuff when he was making his speech in front of the White House before they marched on the Capitol. But my understanding is uh, that they actually have to prove criminal intent that he they, this was all a master plan. It was all planned. It was for the whole purpose of overthrowing the election results, and and that's that's going to be rather difficult. I mean, even after I guess the testimony is presented, uh, the legal arguments are going to go on for quite some time. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it, it's also worth remembering here that we're likely not going to see anything come out of these committee hearings, especially when there are parallel investigations that are being headed up by the Department of Justice. And ultimately, if there was to be a charge laid against someone like the former president uh, for any kind of involvement here, that would lie at the hands uh, of the attorney general. I think what, what this committee is trying to do, mostly made of Democrats with two kind of, uh, you know, moderate central Republicans who are against former President Trump, what they're trying to do is show the American public that there was a threat to democracy, that there was um, uh, a planned uh, kind of attempt here to subvert democracy and, and take away an election to put it in the hands of somebody that lost that election. And I think that is the, the, the groundwork that they're trying to do. They're trying to kind of 
solidify that foundation underneath the Democratic base and underneath some potential wavering Republicans to say, look, this is a party that potentially was standing in the way of this country's ability to move forward as a free democracy. Uh, and, and whether or not, you know, charges come out of this, whether or not they're able to, to, to move any further beyond just getting these kind of hearings out in, in the public open, the court of public opinion is ultimately going to have a much more devastating impact on the Republicans if it does. Is there going to be a, an element here of, of the Republican caucus that's going to finally figure that Donald Trump may well be kryptonite? We, you and I were talking about this months ago that, you know, he still has a lot of sway within the Republican Party. Uh, but as you mentioned uh, in, in some of the primaries for these midterms, uh, an awful lot of the people that he handpicked to run uh, lost uh, those primaries. And, and there was a survey reporting over the weekend, of course, that uh, Florida Governor DeSantis is actually uh, leading uh, a Donald Trump potential, uh, you know, candidacy for president uh, coming up in two years from now, too. DeSantis may be their guy, uh, and Trump may just be an afterthought for so many of these people right now. Do, do you see a groundswell for, for change here, or, or do they still fear the influence Donald Trump could have on the party? I mean, look, it's 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 hard to say, and and you know, you're right. Ron DeSantis is kind of that that leading, or at least leaning in the direction yeah. uh, of trying to top up the Republican Party. Um, you know, what happens though if Donald Trump officially throws his hat in the race? Because this is a party that has oftentimes spoken out against Donald Trump, whether he was candidate Trump or then President Trump, uh, but then finds himself in a position of being in the crosshairs, and then the story changes, and they now back the president. Uh, does does Ron DeSantis hold a chance right now? Sure. Can he grip the Republican? party sure if donald trump actually throws his name in what does happen what happens then and what happens to that camaraderie and friendship that existed as well between donald trump uh, and between ron DeSantis? he does still hold control over this party even to the point of where he threw in um uh, an endorsement of kevin mccarthy over the weekend somebody who has been booed repeatedly by republicans and donald trump himself has called Kevin McCarthy, a rhino or Republican in name only, and then still throws his support behind him. So Donald Trump kind of throws things at the wall and whatever sticks sticks because he understands that still what he touches, even if it doesn't work, there are still people who will go along with that. I've uh, got a couple minutes left here, Reggie. I wanted to ask you about what's going on with Ukraine, too. The, the uh, stories over the weekend, of course, is the Russians have, have upped uh, their attacks on the supply chain. Uh, many of those are U.S. weapons that are trying to make their way over to uh, a number of places in Ukraine right now. Uh, and again, Putin has issued another threat, saying if this, the th arms flow continues, that they're going to be forced to take action. I, I, now, there, some people are saying these are just idle threats, uh, but with a guy like Putin, you just never know. How's the Biden administration reacting to Putin's latest uh, threat to, to, to ramp things up here. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a threat that was made over the weekend, and it's a threat that came out of the Kremlin earlier today. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov repeating the line of Vladimir Putin that if this that they'll be just forced to move the quote-unquote Nazis back from the front line, a.k.a. the Ukrainians, uh, by whatever means necessary. And we've seen attacks in and around the Kyiv region in the last 24 hours. So there is a potential here that the threat is carried through with, but we're also more than 100 days in of these threats from the Kremlin, that if Western weapons continue to flow into Ukraine, that that will be the last straw. Where does the straw finally run out? We have to wait and see. The Biden administration isn't fearful of this. They understand that uh, that they've made a commitment here that they are going to continue to send these long-range missiles in, whether or not there is this veiled threat coming in uh, from Putin. I think what's more interesting here is 
on the U.S. side of things, as the Biden administration really works to try and protect Ukraine, it itself is also taking kind of some flack from the American public who are saying, look, we've got a crisis at home when it comes to gas, when it comes to food, when it comes to inflation. Maybe we're spending too much on Ukraine. And this is now something that's going to start weighing on the Biden administration as well. Very important week coming up in Washington. And as always, uh, we'll be watching for your reporting on this. Reggie, thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. And uh, watch his reports on Global National, of course, uh, every weeknight to see what's going to happen with those committees, especially. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Who are you may well be the question many people in the Ontario Liberal Party are asking themselves these days after their uh, crushing defeat, uh, on, of course, last Thursday in the provincial election. Uh, there should be. No matter what, win, lose, or draw, a reassessment of, of you know what a political party is all about, and and you know let's let's have some honest evaluation of it. And I don't know if that's going on with these guys or not, uh, but I'm hearing from an awful lot of them since the election results last Thursday night, and uh, that's why I was so intrigued by an op-ed piece that appeared in the Bay Observer uh, from a, a longtime liberal uh, who is basically asking, "What's happened to my party?" Uh, Vito Scro is a chartered professional accountant. He's a former mayoral candidate back in 2018. Uh, a liberal candidate for Flamborough Glenbrook back in the 2021 federal election, and uh, a longtime uh, organizer and supporter of uh, the Liberal Party uh, here in southern Ontario, especially in the Hamilton area. Uh, and he's the author of this piece, and I wanted to bring him on because I think this is a conversation uh, that all political parties should have, and, and a, a very frank discussion about what went right, what went wrong. Uh, Vito Scro, welcome to the program. It's good to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. It's been a while. Uh, it's great talking to you again. And I want to say hi to all my friends in London. I went to the University of Western Ontario. Uh, it's a great city and, and I made a lot of great friends, lifelong friends there. So good morning. I know. And well, it is a great city. We're so proud to be broadcasting from there, too. Uh, and they've had their political ups and downs uh, for party affiliations as well. Uh, let me ask you right up front. It's a great piece, by the way, and we'll talk about some of the details of this in a second. Were you surprised at what happened last Thursday? Uh, no, I probably knew about a week beforehand, 10 days before. Um, I have a friend who is a pollster, and he's not a pollster for the public. His, his things don't go public. So he tells you the real facts. He was able to tell me what was going to happen with my elections, almost to the, to the percent. He told us we're, we're done, and we knew that long before. So I, I kind of, I was hoping that maybe something would change, but no, I knew it was coming. I got to tell, for listeners who may not know your background, and we just gave a, a brief overview of it here, uh, you've been a longtime Liberal supporter, as you mentioned. You've been involved with the Federal Liberal Party since 1979 and uh, been involved with a number of elections, but you don't mind calling out your party when you think it's it's uh, time to do so. I, I know that I had you and a couple of other people on a panel uh, in studio way back when about uh, Bill Morneau's policy of to do a small business. Uh, and, and you don't mind. I mean, you beat the drum for that an awful lot to the point where they eventually had to change the policy. Uh, so you, you may be a liberal, but at the same time, uh, you, you're not ideologically blind to, to what's going on. Well, but, but I, I would argue that I am. Uh, I'm a true centrist. I don't care who came up with the idea. If it's a good idea, if it came from the right or the left, let's do it. And if my party, who I, you know, the party I love, the party I've been involved with since I was 14 years old, if they're coming up with something that I think is wrong, I'm going to talk about it. And I can tell you that doesn't make everyone happy. Uh, there were certain people when I was asked to run, um, they were not happy about it at all. And to be quite frank with you, I don't care. Um, this is the party that I think 
Canadians, well, the party that used to be, that Canadians need. Um, I think the most effective government in my lifetime was Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin. They cared about social programs, but they realized you've got to pay for it. You've got to make sure that they last. We've got to enrich them. And how do you do that? You have to also be fiscally responsible. So uh, I don't, I'm not afraid to open my mouth and it has gotten me into trouble with the party. There's probably more liberals who don't like me than not. What happened to your party? Because it, it, it wasn't just, as you mentioned in the op-ed piece, this just didn't happen last Thursday. This has been going for some time. We tried to out NDP the NDP. And uh, if someone really wanted it or liked those type of policies, they voted NDP. They didn't vote for us. It worked in 2014 uh, with Premier Wynne. We were able to take a lot of the NDP vote and keep our vote. But over time, people got fed up. Bill, I've knocked on literally tens and tens and tens of thousands of doors in the last few decades probably 20,000 doors in the last three or four years, running for mayor, running, you know, federally. People, people find a lot of things important, but if you don't mention that, you know, I can't afford to buy a house, my children can't afford to buy a house, I can't find a doctor, my, my child can't find a job for what they went to school with, am I, am I going to keep my job? Things like, if you don't uh, put that at the top of your your campaign and your 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 you know a platform. They're not going to pay attention to you, and that's what's happening. So yes, all the other things are extremely extremely important, and you have to put them in into your platform. But if you mention the things that everyday Canadians you know what matter to them every day, they're going to tune you out. And to you know put it in terms that some of my people in my party will understand, we're getting canceled, and I hate that term by the way. Well, and you've heard the rumors. I mean, this happens every time a party gets decimated in an election. Uh, you know, when uh, the aforementioned Gretchen government uh, wiped out the the, the conservatives federally. The, well, it wasn't Barry Mulroney by then; it was Kim Campbell. But it was it was the Mulroney regime. Uh, there was talk about okay, the party's gone. The Conservative Party, as we know, it, is going to be dead. Uh, the same thing has happened here a couple of times. The NDP uh, have not received party status in elections. So, well, that's it; they're dead in the water. Uh, they just we should merge. And, and I, I, you've heard that on election night, and I certainly did from some of the pundits, that maybe it's time for the, these two parties on the left to merge together to make a more powerful party. I, and then I've seen a lot of pushback from liberals that say, we don't want to merge. We want to go back to where we should be. We're not, you know, get away from the, the left. Let's move to the center where we belong. And that's, I don't know that your members of your party actually agree with that now. I can tell you, uh, I have friends in all parties. People in the a true NDP don't want to become liberals. And believe me, people in the Liberal Party, for the most part, don't want to become part of the NDP either or, or merge. The proof is in the pudding. A majority or a large part of people who used to vote liberal, they went conservative this time around. I was in the riding of Hamilton East Stony Creek where I grew up. Uh, my good friend Jason Farr, city councillor in Hamilton, great public servant, ran. He's well-liked. Uh, the polling showed him personally was well, well liked. I was in a poll uh, that my mother's poll. It was the seventh highest poll out of 200 normally for liberals. We came in third. There was a poll that Tony Valeri, who was the liberal MP and former transport minister, he mm -hmm. won that poll 300 to one. We came in third. Those people didn't go NDP. They went conservative. And it's not that they're true blue right wing conservatives. They felt that the Conservatives, Doug Ford, was talking about more of the things that were important to them. 
until we go back to where we're supposed to go, we're going to be in the wilderness. One other thing, we won the, the federal election. We had more seats. You know, we've lost the popular vote twice in a row in the last yep. two elections. So that's if, if you're not worried by that, then, you know, we're in bigger trouble than I thought. Well, as I say, you, you have friends at all three political parties, contacts in all three political parties. Uh, do they see that there's a shifting of, of, of the ground below them here as to what's happening? Uh, well, both federally and provincial, quite frankly, because uh, these are not the same sorts of political parties that, uh, that well, for instance, you saw, uh, you know, when you got into politics yourself in 1979. Uh, the liberals are different. The conservatives are certainly different. Uh, they've gone through a number of different machinations, you know, from uh, in from those early days with you, uh, from David Peterson uh, as a liberal, um, then Mike Harris came along with the common sense revolution, uh, and uh, you know, there's we have fear instilled in us, I guess, by some of these movements. But who's doing the analysis to say, whoa, that was a wrong turn? Let's try to pull back and do this. Does that even happen? Well, I mean, I, I'm not in the top echelons of the party, although I see there's two parts to our party. There's the, the politicians and then there's the actual party machine itself. And I'm more close to that group, the, the second group. Um, a lot of them left after the last election. I mean, they saw the writing on the wall. They were a little angry. Uh, and I'm not I'm not blasting the, pol you know, the politicians in my party. I just wish they would listen. I had a chance to speak with the prime minister, and it was one of the great honors of my life to put my name on a campaign sign with him. I just wanted to add a, a, a different voice to the party. I'm not blasting Prime Minister Trudeau. I, I, I think he's doing a great job. I think he, there needs to be more of a diverse opinion in our party. Um, we have to go back to where we were. And if we do that, we'll be fine. But I wrote in my op-ed, if the Conservatives ever got their act together, and I, I don't know if they ever will, if they they pick a true centrist who's popular in Ontario, then we're we're in serious, serious trouble. Um, uh, they pick a Jean Charest or a, uh, uh, Patrick Brown. Patrick Brown is doing everything you're supposed to do. And I, and I, I, I don't understand what's going on with his party. He's visiting all types of groups. He's gone to almost every mosque in Ontario. Uh, the biggest mosque outside of Toronto is probably in Hamilton. He's been there two, three times already. He won as mayor in a very diverse city. As a liberal, he scares me. So where's the analysis with the, with the Ontario Liberal Party? I mean, clearly Mr. Del Duca stepped down uh, after the results were pretty evident on Thursday. Uh, so there's going to be a new leader. We know that, and we know what that process is going to be like, although there's some talk now that they may actually revamp the, the way in which the leader is chosen, the way the votes actually are counted. Uh, but is there going to be a talk about change of philosophy? And, and we've seen this happen sometimes, Vito, right in front of our eyes. A lot of the stuff gets done behind closed doors. Um, but, you know, after uh, after Tom Mulcair uh, lost uh, to the election, to Justin Trudeau in 2015, um, you know, he went off to the policy convention in Edmonton, assuming they were going to talk about environmental policies. He, he, they just set the trap door on him, said, we don't want you anymore. You're gone. Uh, and and there seemed to be a lot of discussion about, well, where was the NDP? And that was the accusation, of course, that, well, Mulcair tried to move us too close to the middle. And so we can't have that. We want to go back to our roots way over on the left. Uh, and there were concerns about some of the candidates you just mentioned for the federal conservatives, that they wanted to go too close to the middle. But as you point out in the piece, that's where Canadian voters are. Uh, exactly. I mean, you can dabble. You can dabble, and it, there's an argument to be made, I guess, Vito, that that even the Ford government moved a little close to the middle. In other words, the Liberals vacated the middle, uh, and and they moved over there, not to the middle, but I mean, they they inched along there ever so slightly, and I think that's why an awful lot of disenchanted Liberals said, you know what, I can trust this guy. He works with Justin Trudeau. Uh, he doesn't put politics ahead of some of the key issues. Maybe he's not such a bad guy after all. 
Um, and, and that was all conversations that started because the liberals basically said, no, we're going in, in this ideological way, not in this pragmatic way. Uh, well, you're 100% right. And, and what discussions are going on, I think it's a little too early. I don't know of any, to be quite frank with you. Um, I think everybody's a little shell shot. Uh, they're, you know, the, the party um, was in trouble. I mean, it didn't have a lot of paid staff. Uh, and the people who were there, they tried so hard. They tried so hard. They need some rest. Um, we've got some time. Take our time. Okay, and let's let's have a, a proper discussion about this to how do we get back to relevancy, because we're not now having said that the people in the NDP, I don't know why they're happy. You know, if they actually got less votes than the liberal, their seats dropped. Uh, there's a problem. Ideologies, in my opinion, if that's all you're running on, you're never going to take power and do good and do all the things you want to do. People care about certain things. And if you don't mention those things at first, you're in big trouble. You're not going to get elected. That's the bottom line. I, I've only, I think, attended two political conventions, um, working, of course, uh, we, as, as a broadcaster. Uh, one was the Ontario uh, Leadership Convention when Mike Harris stepped down. And that was interesting to watch that dynamic because that was a political party, like the, the federal or the provincial conservatives, that were trying to figure, okay, are we going to continue with the common sense revolution, et cetera? And you had different candidates. And it was fun to watch the machinations that went on. But the other one was a federal liberal convention in 2006, I guess it was, uh, after Paul Martin resigned on election night. And uh, they had been, you know, sent to the political doghouse, of course, because they just got their butts kicked in that election a few months before that. But as I talked to a lot of the delegates there, Vito, the consensus mm -hmm. I've heard from a lot of them is, oh, they'll come back. You know, they're, they're, they're just mad at us now. But, you know, next election, you don't you worry. And I said, I'm thinking, no way, man. You've got to earn that. You can't just expect people are going to come back to you. You have to earn their respect and you have to get their attention again. And I, I don't know if that, that conversation is even taking place. I mean, is there still an attitude in that party that, well, we're the natural governing party. They'll, there's a, they'll gravitate to us you know, sooner than later. I don't think that's the case anymore. Uh, fewer and fewer people think that. The people I know anyway, fewer and fewer people think that way right now. Um, there's good, there's going to be an election in a couple of years and depending on what the conservatives do and who's, who's going to lead what party, I, I have no idea right now. We have a chance to go back to what we were. And if we do that, I think we, I think we can be relevant and I think we'll be successful if we don't, I mean, they should look at Ontario and see what happened. I mean, this is a warning for us right there. That's the, I've never been in a situation where two elections in a row, we failed to achieve party status. I mean, we got shellacked in 1984. I remember that. And we got shellacked in 2011. And, and uh, you know, that was kind of, okay, let's take a breather. Let's rebuild. I've never seen where twice in a row after four years, we, we're not a party technically in, in, in parliament or in the legislature. If that doesn't tell you what's wrong, then I don't know what will. So, with that in mind, then I mean, how do you proceed on this? I mean, if if there is a consensus here that okay, we have to change, and and by the way, change is natural. You know, mm -hmm. no political party is is the way same way they were twenty years ago, nor should they be, because right. you know the world changes, events change, and, and people's attitudes change. We all understand that. But boy, you make a wrong turn and, and go off in the wrong direction. Uh, it, it's a long, long way back to try to get people's uh, trust once again. Well, you know, it, this is kind of easy. You want to know how to get back to relevancy. Go out and talk to people. I know it sounds Pollyannish, but go to the door and talk. Don't get your policy from tweets or from blogs or from 
so-called influencers, go talk to the average person as best you can, okay? And not just someone who voted liberal. See, because um, another problem in, in all of politics is the number of volunteering is, is dropped significantly. I remember campaigns in the, in the 80s and 90s, we'd have three, 400 volunteers. It's down to five, 10, 15 people now, and it's hard to hit all the doors. So, you know, what we do and what most parties do is if they know someone's voted liberal, they said they voted liberal in the last three or four part, you know, elections, They'll just go to them directly and skip everybody else. Well, you've got four years now. There's no excuse to not go to almost every door. It can be done. It takes a long time. But listen, first of all, people like that, that you came to their door, for the most part, you get a, you get a few ugly incidents. But for the most part, it's thank you for coming. No one's ever knocked on my door. I ran for mayor. Uh, it was a complete unknown. I mean, we didn't win, but we still got 52,000 votes. And I attributed that to a fantastic campaign team. But I went to every farm, every donut shop, every every mall, every street, every everywhere I could to just talk to people. You will find out what's on Canadians' mind and what's unimportant. And we've lost that. We, we think we can just electronically do this, put out some social media, which, believe me, I think has the, been the problem. Social media is a wonderful tool, but it shouldn't um, uh, take over from your campaigning. It should just be a tool for your campaign. Nothing beats talking to someone one-on-one -on -one if you can. Nothing. Yeah, uh, but to my experience, and, and again, talking to people like yourself that have been organizing for a long, long time, uh, you can't wait for an election to do that. Uh, right. you know, because time is of the essence. You know, you got to knock on doors, and, and, the, and your, your handlers will say, look, you've got 30 seconds at the door, then you have to move on to the next one because we have to cover this writing. That, you don't learn anything in that. You, you spout the, the, your talking points, and then you move on. Here's the literature. Uh, do this between elections. Go and talk to people. Go to the barbecues in the summertime. Uh, go to the church hall meetings and, and just talk. And more, no, not talk. Listen uh, to what yep. they've got to say. And that's how you develop the policy. Because if you don't have that hammered out before you go to the doors, uh, well, you saw what happened to the liberals. I, you don't want to repeat of that again. This, the next four years, I guess, now since it's a majority government, uh, these guys have got to learn to listen. Uh, and if they don't, they do so at their own peril. 100% right. Um We've got four years. Uh, and and I, if I was ever in charge, and God forbid I ever am, it's very simple. You're a sitting MP, sitting MPP. I need to see the 2,000 doors you've hit in one month. You always have time. Yes, you've got work, and I understand you can't do that every day. And I'm not talking going directly to the people who are affiliated with your party. Uh, hold something at a library. Hold something at a restaurant, a coffee shop, whatever. Get as many people in there as you can. Um, there's fair season coming up across the, you know, in the summer, put up a booth and, and you know what, it could get ugly and it will get ugly at times, but that people are allowed to speak their mind, you'll get through to them or they'll get through to you one way or the other, but you're forming a connection and you'll understand what their life is really like. I think that's the biggest problem. Um, they're, they're, they feel that they're being lectured to on why, how they should feel, how, what should happen. Listen to what their problems are. And, 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 you know, I'm on the federal campaign. One of the biggest issues um, in the one area, it's Waterdown. It's an area like Northwest London, fairly new. It's an old village that all the new uh, housing is going around. The biggest complaint, one of them was no park or f recreational facilities, which isn't a federal issue, but I had to listen and understand what the problem was and maybe offer a suggestion. There's some federal infrastructure. You work with your city council. They felt heard. That was what was important to them. And that's what got them interested in what I had to say. So, just go talk to people is what I'm basically saying. 
Exactly, and uh, and by the way, this all applies to the NDP too. I mean, you know, they, they oh sure. If and if you want to continue with the same, you know, little piece of the pie, uh, and think that you're going to grow, uh, that's a political naivety. I mean, you you got to change with the times, but you have to understand what changes are already occurring and, and respond to those. Anyway, it's a great piece. Go to the Bay Observer webpage, and you can read it for yourself. Vito, uh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Bill. Take care. You betcha. Vito Scro, a longtime uh, party organizer and political organizer, uh, trying to make sense of what happened last Thursday. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.